Jesus, teach us about your joy, that we would be changed and we would become agents of change in the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to those of you joining us on the podcast as well. It's good to be with you. We are in the middle of the Advent season and in the thick of a sermon series called Behind the Music. And in this series, we've been, talking, uh, we've been taking a look at popular Christmas carols and kind of putting them up alongside Scripture in order to get a clearer picture of Jesus. And today we're going to take a look at one of the most celebrated Christmas carols in our Western tradition, at least, and that's Joy to the World. Joy to the World. It's a famous song. It has been sung and recorded by the biggest name choirs and biggest name artists throughout history. It is a popular song, the most published Christmas hymn in North America, having appeared in at least 2,000 hymnals since it was written almost 300 years ago. In other words, there is something about this song, Joy to the World, that strikes a very deep and resonant chord in so many human hearts. And today, I just want to zoom in on three words in particular from this song, Joy to the World, that I think are at the heart of this song and are at the very heart of the good news that Jesus has for you and for me this Christmas season. Those three words are come, receive, and joy. Let's start with that first word, come. When Isaac Watts penned the lyrics of joy to the world, he was paraphrasing the second half of Psalm 98, which Scott just read. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. In depicting a world saturated in joy, Watts was making a profound statement about reality. And his profound statement was this, joy to the world, the Lord is come. The Lord is come. Now that kind of sounds like strange grammar to us a little bit, right? Shouldn't he have said, the Lord has come? Or, the Lord is here. Why does he say, the Lord is come? After all, grammar is important. It keeps us from meaning one thing instead of another. I'll never forget this example from elementary school. It says this, what's up the road ahead? Or, what's up the road ahead? (laughs) One, the person is just curious. Two, they're in a horror movie. (laughs) Grammar makes a big difference. Why does he use the word come instead of here? Why does he do that? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Pastor and writer Eugene Peterson explains it this way. Come is a gospel verb. The distinctive biblical and Christian message is not that God is, but that God comes. And he's going to come again. And that's the very nature of God to come. This is what God does. He's not a professor who delivers ideas to us. He's not some government agent bringing the latest set of regulations so that we can stay out of jail. He comes. He arrives. He shows up. He comes the way a neighbor arrives at our door, knocks and enters our house, and sits down with us over a cup of coffee. 
Peterson continues, we look for his coming in the sensational, but he keeps surprising us in the ordinary. He comes to us in our pain, in our doubt, in our families, in our work. And every time he comes to us and we receive him, we're further and better prepared to meet him at his final coming. The arrival that will complete everything we understand as history. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. And guess what? He keeps coming. And he keeps coming. And he keeps coming. Did you know that even right this moment, Jesus comes to you? Even right this moment, in the middle of that stuff that is heavy on your mind, that you can't stop worrying about, that keeps you awake at night, did you know that Jesus comes to you right this moment, right into the middle of the very stuff that is heavy on your heart? The grief, the despair, the restlessness, the fear. Jesus comes and comes and comes. He comes to you right this moment and every moment and every detail of your life, pursuing you and pursuing the best for you because that is who he is. He is the God who comes. He came to us as Messiah in the form of a baby. That's what Christmas is all about. And, and he will come again. He will come again. That's why we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because one day, Jesus will come again and establish his heaven on this earth. In fact, when Rotz was writing uh, this song, he did not have Jesus' birth in mind. He wasn't writing a Christmas song. That's primarily what we've used this, these words for, is to celebrate Christmas. And that's not totally inappropriate. I don't want to ruin Christmas for everybody who's singing joy to the world. But Watts actually had in mind Jesus' second advent, his second coming, when he wrote Joy to the World. He was describing the hope that we have that one day all will be put to rights because Jesus will bring the fullness of his heaven onto this earth. In that sense, Joy to the World is a song that celebrates the truest of truths, that in the end, everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. All things will be made new because the Lord is come, so joy to the world. That's the first word, come. The second word I want to look at is receive. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Receive. Receive is our response to Jesus coming to us. Jesus comes and we receive his coming. What does it look like to receive the gift of Jesus coming to us? Well, it looks relational, not transactional. Relational, not transactional. Let me explain the difference between those two. This last week, I was expecting a gift to be delivered to me from the good people at UPS. And uh, it was a gift I was very excited about. And I knew what day it was coming, but I didn't know what time it was coming because they kind of give you that vague window. Sometime between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., you'll get your gift, which is so helpful. (laughs) Which led me to uh, believe that surely UPS would not arrive during uh, my morning shower, which, of course, they did. The doorbell rang, and our dog Boone went nuts, starts barking his head off. I knew Katie was unavailable because she was nursing Ryder, and I thought, no problem, UPS will just leave the gift on my doorstep. And that's when I remembered that this particular gift required a signature to be received. 
no signature, no gift, and I wanted this gift. (laughs) So despite being lathered with soap head to toe, I grabbed a towel, threw it around myself, ran to the door, leaving huge puddles everywhere, opened the door to a very surprised UPS driver who immediately looked away embarrassed, which I tried not to take personally, and I signed to receive my gift. What was the gift? I'm not telling you. It's a surprise. The point is this. I sign for the gift. I receive the gift. Sign, receive. That's a transactional gift. But the gift of Jesus is a relational gift. Not merely transactional. Yes, a debt that you owed, that I owed, was paid. But this is so much more than I prayed this prayer, therefore I received this gift. Or I kind of intellectually assent to this belief about God, therefore I am a Christian. So many of us grew up with those kinds of ideas about God that in order for God to like me, I have to sign off on these things. I have to live up to a certain standard. I have to complete my side of the contract. But looking at God that way is like looking at Yosemite Valley through a keyhole. It misses the whole point. It misses the whole point, and the whole point is that the gift of Jesus is a relational gift. It is a gift based on intimate knowing between two people. It is a gift whose value depends on this relationship between the giver and the gift receiver. That's why in John chapter 15, Jesus describes the life that we have always wanted as a relationship. A relationship, like a branch that is joined to a vine. He is the vine. We are the branches. We get all of our nutrients through him. Everything that we need to bloom and to blossom, the gift of Jesus, is a relational gift. And when Jesus explains this to his disciples in John 15, he concludes by saying those words that Scott just read, I have told you this. Why? I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In other words, says Jesus, I am explaining that this gift is meant to be received through intimate relationship with me. And then in receiving this gift through intimate relationship with me, your joy will be made full. And if something is full, it means there's no room for more. The kind of joy Jesus describes spills over the side and gets all over everything and everyone in our lives. That's the kind of joy. This is not a signing for a gift, not some kind of cosmic transaction. This is joining oneself to the gift giver in intimate relationship. One that brings joy to the gift receiver, but also joy to the gift giver. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Which leads us to that last word, joy. Joy. Joy is the fruit of intimate connection to Jesus, the vine. That's why joy is listed as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. There's no other way to receive joy except by being grafted to the vine. Intimately connected to Jesus himself. Joy. Joy is an outrageous word to talk about in light of this last Friday's events. It's an outrageous word. How can we talk about joy when 26 people, most of them very precious little children, were gunned down at their own school? How can we talk about joy? Or how can we talk about joy when for many of us, joy seems so far 
from our day-to-day experience. For some of you, this is your first Christmas without your spouse, either because of death or because of divorce. How can we talk about joy? For some of you, this is your first Christmas without a job or a means of guaranteeing that the bills will get paid. How can we talk about joy at a time like this? For many of you, this holiday season brings up all that is broken with our families, with our friendships. How can we talk about joy? For all of us, we live in a world that is so twisted and broken, it feels like on our best days, all we can do is cry out, Lord, just come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Save us. Save us. How can we talk about joy? Let me share two quick thoughts on that. The first is this. God's very nature is joy. God's very nature is joy. I remember reading something from Dallas Willard in a book called The Divine Conspiracy that forever changed the way I thought about God. Willard wrote this. We should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that he is full of joy. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe. You ever thought about it that way? The abundance of his love and generosity are inseparable from his infinite joy. All of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and fullness. God is the most joyous being in the universe. Now, no one knows better than God the depth of the sin and the brokenness in our world. For every tear we cry, he cries more. As much as our hearts break, his heart breaks more. And yet God is the most joyous being in the universe. God's very nature is joy, which says something about joy. Clearly, joy is not just a giddy feeling. It's not just kind of some intermittent happiness that kind of comes and goes with the weather. So what is joy? Joy is the felt confidence that in the end, all will be put to rights. In the end, everything will be okay. God isn't the most joyous being in the universe because he is ignorant of events like school shootings and extreme poverty and human trafficking. God is the most joyous being in the universe because he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that all these things, even these things, are being made right. Even the things in your life right now that feel so painful and so challenging. Even those those things. Which leads me to that second thought about joy. Joy is God's great nevertheless. Joy is God's great nevertheless. Theologian Karl Barth said that. In other words, the grief we experience is absolutely real. We can't get away from it. Nevertheless, even our mourning will be turned into dancing. Our fears about the future and how in the world is this going to work out, that stuff is absolutely real absolutely real. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God is working all things together for good somehow. And I don't mean don't cry about it. Everything's going to be all right. No. That kind of sentiment totally dishonors the depths of who we are. It misses our hearts. What I mean is when we cry about it, because we certainly will, When we cry about it, our tears remind us of the promise that one day 
everything will be made right. You see, joy is not the absence of suffering. Rather, joy is the constant companion of those who suffer. Joy is our constant companion. Because God is joy. And joy will not leave us in despair. Joy is God's great nevertheless. So to experience joy in the middle of the painful realities that we know so well, we must stick very close to Jesus. And this week, especially as we're preparing for Christmas and we're reading the headlines, I invite you to stick very close to Jesus. As you read disturbing headlines, invite Jesus once again to come and to make things right in our world. May your kingdom come on earth like it is in heaven. Please, God. When you feel that ache for more, or that grief from a loss, or that fear about uncertainty, invite Jesus to reveal his joy to you, even in the aching, even in the grieving, even in the fear. Stick close to Jesus. Let me close with this. I have a friend who is a teaching pastor in California. He likens the working of evil in our time that we are all witnesses to and often contribute to. He likens the working of evil in our time to that of a fire just before that fire is extinguished. He says that when a fire is nearly extinguished, it is gasping for air, trying to consume oxygen wherever it can because oxygen is what keeps it blazing and it's running out of oxygen. It's about to run out. In other words, the evil we are witnessing in the world does not mean that God is losing the battle. Does not mean God is losing the battle. On the contrary, it means that evil is running out of oxygen. It is nearly extinguished. And one day, very soon, though I know it doesn't feel soon enough, very soon evil will be extinguished forever. Therefore, therefore, joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. So come, receive joy. Will you pray with me? Jesus, how we need you to make sense of these two sides of the same coin, joy and suffering. God, we we truly do need comfort. We truly do need justice. We need help. And at the very same moment, Lord, we, we hold on to this promise that all things will be made well. So that this promise doesn't exist for us just in the future somewhere, but this promise is true for us even now. That even now, all the stuff that is so difficult and so painful and so challenging and so confusing, all this stuff right now, we can have hope, we can have joy because you are good, you are joy, and you are at work. We commit ourselves again to you as best we can. Have mercy on us, Jesus.